It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, friends. Welcome to Cadillac On Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. Another week of progress in the ongoing effort to turn back the COVID-19 pandemic. Much to cover on tonight's program, including the latest on the COVID case rates in our region, vaccination updates, plus the time is drawing near when children will be eligible for vaccination. Later in our program, a visit to Cadillac Regional Medical Center to see how all is faring there following the critical surge that heavily strains the health care system back in August and September. But first, we welcome to the program Heather Hill with the Communicable Disease Program Manager with the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, why don't we begin tonight? I know probably the most uh, newsworthy item that we've seen in the last day is that it's getting closer and closer that children ages 5 to 12 are going to be getting vaccinated soon. Maybe let's start there with a couple of key comments on when we might expect that around here in our community in the next few weeks, potentially. Yes, yesterday the FDA advisory panel, which is an advisory panel to the FDA, they did endorse the Pfizer vaccine for kids 5 to 11 years old. Now we're waiting for the the full FDA approval, which should come in within the next few days. So, again, we're back to these these steps of approvals till we get that final yes, we can give it to five to uh, eleven year olds. Uh, the CDC will likely meet next week. If if the FDA has approved it, they'll then the CDC will meet next week, and then it'll continue through the approval processes. But we would expect to see vaccine rolling out to children in our community within the next week or two, and. Um, Washington State has already ordered 230,000 doses of vaccine for that age group, and it should start delivery next week. And the health district is actually acting as the depot for our community. So if you have a provider who doesn't have the large storage capacity necessary for large quantities to come in, they are able to use us as the depot, and then we transfer it to them. So your pediatrician, your family practice doctor who doesn't have the capacity to carry a lot of vaccine, they can get that from us You know, in a matter of a day or so. We can turn that vaccine around, get it into their office, and then they don't have to store quite so much, and it can be used up in a timely manner. I think the other important thing to think about and to understand is the pediatric dose is actually a third of the adult dose. So it's not the same actual dose strength as an adult dose. And they are also packaging it with orange caps and orange um, colors on the box to make sure that providers see a definite difference between the child, the 5 to 11 dose, versus the 12 and older dose because we don't want those mixed up. The other important thing to realize is, you know, these vaccines, once again, have been vetted, they've been tested on kids of this age group, and we don't expect to see any significant unusual side effects as a result of giving these vaccines to kids. But what these vaccines do is they really help keep kids in school. So if your child has been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and becomes a close contact with 
a classmate or a teacher who is diagnosed with COVID or is probably COVID infected, then your child doesn't have to stay home if they're fully vaccinated. They can continue to go to school with their mask on like all kids are doing, and then they should test about five to seven days after the exposure. But not only will the vaccine help prevent your child from catching COVID, getting sick, but it will also help keep them in school if they get exposed. Lots of questions coming out of that. So this is the Pfizer vaccine. So as adults, it's a smaller dose, but will they still have the same time regimen, meaning uh, one dose every four to six weeks? So a total of two yes, doses? The, the the series is the same time-wise. It's just that the dose is smaller. And so that would happen, as you touched on, you, you mentioned that the health district would serve as a quote-unquote depot to uh, be the catalyst to, to make sure the distribution happens. Is that where you're urging families is to go through their, their pediatrician, their family doctor to get these vaccinations? We always encourage parents to reach out to their child's pediatrician or family practice physician or provider for their vaccination needs. And, and that holds true with the COVID vaccine also. But as the vaccine starts to roll out for that age group, we'll know more um, where it's available across our community. And we'll certainly get that information out to the public through our website and our other social media ways of messaging. But we really encourage our, our providers in the community to have this vaccine, just like they do all the other childhood vaccines, because you are you are the person who has the best knowledge about that child's health. And so you as the provider can give the best messages to that family as far as how to help them make that decision whether to COVID vaccinate or not. Do we know how many eligible sages for Benton and Franklin County kids of that 5 to 11 age group that that would be eligible for that? I'm not sure the exact data for our community, but I know across Washington State, there are about 680,000 kids in that 5 to 11 age group. And right off the bat, they expect with the um, surveys that they've done, there's about a, a 30% of the families are very, very anxious to get this vaccine into their kids. We're getting a lot of calls from families of this age group because they want to take their kids out on trips. We have the holidays coming up, and we know that airlines and travel and going country to country, having that vaccine card is going to be extremely important once you are able to get back into more travel opportunities. And so we are hearing a lot more families really looking forward to getting their kids vaccinated, not only to stop disease, but also so that your their children can travel. And I was going to say, doing some rough uh, calendar math, does that mean, say, early to mid-November, if a child gets vaccinated, they would potentially be fully vaccinated by Christmas, potentially? Yeah, that, that would make sense if we are able to get the vaccine in town, like we're hoping, and providers start vaccinating. Your child could be fully vaccinated in time for Christmas, Christmas events, Christmas travel, and they would be in a much safer situation since COVID is still um, yes, it's decreasing, but we're still seeing some pretty high rates all across the United States. And just like uh, we we have seen with the adult vaccine, there are people that are hesitant. 
And I know it's taken a fair amount of education and uh, encouragement for people to to go ahead and get vaccinated. And uh, I'm guessing when it involves your children, you're going to be even more so. Uh, From your view and your career and your expertise, what's a message to a mom or a dad that's sitting there going, hey, my kids are in that 5 to 11 group and I'm a little worried? Absolutely. I'm, I'm a parent. My children are certainly older. But as a, as a parent, I can remember being honestly concerned. And I'm a nurse, and my world involves immunizations. And so I can fully appreciate a parent being concerned. But when I look at all the work that's being done with looking at these vaccines for any kind of risk, and we have to understand there is a risk-benefit ratio that has to be considered. The risk of catching COVID disease, even for a child, the risk of bad outcomes far outweighs that potential risk of a bad outcome to a vaccine. We just don't see those bad outcomes happening to the vaccines very often at all. They're very rare events, but it is not a rare event to have a bad outcome, even for a child who actually catches COVID disease. Visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District, we have more of her time. We'll get to that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. We are continuing our discussion with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. And, Heather, let's get into the latest data relative to case rates. And I know the numbers continue to look good. I'm I'm thinking what I'm reading from the information you shared with me, these case rates in Benton County is 368 per 100,000. And in Franklin County, it's uh, right around 400. And, gosh, it wasn't too long ago, I recall, those rates were over 1,000 in both counties. Right. We were recently extremely high, and we've certainly seen things improve, especially over the last, you know, three to four weeks, we've had this downward trend. And that's that's really good news. Um, we still are looking very closely at our positivity rate, especially out at our CBC West test site. And we look at the, the number of tests that they process in a 14-day period of time, and we look at what is the positivity rate. And it's Right now at about 12%. Again, that's a decrease by about 3% since we visited last week. So, again, the positivity rate is decreasing, and actually the total number of tests that they're running is also decreasing. So, again, starting to see some trends in the right direction and, and holding in that trend. Again, we've talked a lot about don't look at a single day or sometimes even look at one week's data, you need to look at several weeks to see truly are we trending down. Now the hospitalization rate, it did blip up a smidgen, but again, that's just really over a one week period of time. Hospitals were able to handle that increase in admissions. And again, it doesn't necessarily make a trend. So we would want to look and see, um, do we see that increase happen again or is it back to trending down, and that's what we're really looking for. Um, you know, certainly would encourage that that 15 to 39 year old age group, where we right now continue to see the highest case rate, 
they are also the the segment of the population that vaccination could most impact. And if we could get that population of people vaccinated, I think that would you know significantly improve our our situation rather quickly. And as you're saying, that age group fifteen to thirty nine, uh, they're also probably that age group that's the parents of these 5- to 11-year-olds, so all the more reason, right? All the more reason to get vaccinated. You know, if your entire family is vaccinated, you are going to have a much healthier winter, that's for sure. And, and as you said, and I, I go back to the last segment, the one comments about getting children vaccinated and, and just trying to address all of the concerns that parents might have, the one more practical one from a going to school type of standpoint that you mentioned that really struck with me that I hadn't thought of is the fact that, you, as you mentioned, if you're fully vaccinated and there is someone exposed or you're exposed to someone, then you do not have to go stay home. Right. And that is so important, especially for working families, because not only is there a stress on children when they're not going to school, being in live in front of the teacher with your classmates is truly the best place for kids to be. And we want them healthy. We want them in school. But also when a child has to stay home in quarantine because they've been exposed, that's a, that's a financial stress on the family. And then a parent has to stay home with a child or a babysitter gets involved, you know, a grandparent gets involved, there's risk there of exposing others. So truly getting your child vaccinated isn't just for their own health, but it will also help stabilize that family. Um, if there was to be an exposure, then parents don't have to miss work. Visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District, and uh, the calendar is about to switch to November, and we know what happens on October 31st. And really, I suppose it begins the holiday season with Halloween, followed by Thanksgiving, followed by the Christmas season. Halloween, what, what what should folks do? Uh, the, the good thing is, I guess you're outdoors if you go trick-or-treating, but certainly a lot of people have uh, parties associated with Halloween. What's the advice for parents in trick-or-treating with kids? Sure. Outside is certainly the safest and the best place to be. Um, wear your face covering. If you're going to go out in a group, you know, if you're, you're joining some friends and you're going to go house to house, Make sure they're all wearing face masks. It's a great time to turn that COVID protection face mask into something fun, incorporate it into that child's um, Halloween costume for this year. And, you know, try to honestly avoid those, those parties, those gatherings where you're inside, you're in a crowded environment, and you're not with that safe bubble of people that you know have been vaccinated and have been doing all those mitigation efforts to prevent catching COVID. I want to, so we, so we have Halloween, it's okay to do it. And, and I think it, the same would go for these, uh, these gatherings relative to Thanksgiving and Christmas as well of, of all of these things that we had practiced. And, and again, the alternative would be not being able to gather. So I guess uh, we're kind of used to this. So what's another winter, uh, without having to at least take these precautions again. Yeah, it, it's something that I think we need to incorporate into what is normal for us maybe for years to come, being a little more cautious about our gatherings, what is the illness rate of whether it be COVID or influenza in our community, and using that to guide you, you know, in the future whether you're going to participate in a large group activity. 
how you're going to conduct your, your party for the holidays. How many people are you going to invite? We know that crowded spaces, enclosed spaces, sharing of food items, sharing of serving utensils, that is really risking exposure to a lot of potential illness. I want to have you address, before we, we let you go, the the, the issues with uh, the, the good things that we're seeing, you know, some now some good data, sustained data, where the case rates are coming down, hospitalizations, all these points we've been watching so closely are are, are going in the right direction. Maybe just uh, back up and go from your public health hat that you wear so regularly and, and so well, What what's been the difference? You know, I... It, that's a really good question, Jim. I don't think there's any one simple answer to what what is the difference. We know that we are seeing vaccination rates creep up a bit, about 1% a week. So we know our population is getting vaccinated more. Um, I think people truly are taking to heart mitigation strategies and, and working very hard not to get infected. Our schools, our schools have done a phenomenal job at reducing transmission. And again, we're just not seeing transmission happening in that school environment. So I I don't think it's any one specific strategy that has improved our situation. We just hope people continue to, to keep these practices going so that we can go into the holiday season feeling a little bit more relaxed than we have in years past. And just a minute or so left before we let you go for this week uh, as we get ready to uh, hit this holiday season. And and I know they're so familiar to everyone, but, you know, again, maybe we have stricken that right balance uh, uh, that we can can get on with our lives, enjoy our lives, but be conscious of, of some of these things that have worked. So there can be that balance that's appropriate, but it's safe and allows us to continue to live our lives the way we want to. Right. Just like we've always said, wash your hands, cover your cough. Um, That's become a normal part of our respiratory hygiene as we spend time with friends or at work. And I, I think continuing with the hand sanitizers, the face covering, keeping our distance from each other is, is honestly going to become a, a rather normal part of everyday disease prevention because COVID isn't going away. It will decrease, but we don't anticipate it's going to go completely away. And then we have influenza coming up. We're heading into the flu season. And so the same mitigation strategies will help us with influenza as well. Visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District, and I know that's the the other concern is is, is the flu, et cetera, and everything associated with, with flu that we have. But in a couple of seconds, I know last year at this time, we were starting to trend in the right direction as well. And then December hit, and we saw those numbers go back up. Um, are we in a much better position today? Uh, well, we're certainly in a different position than we are today. And again, we say op- cautiously optimistic. We've used that <laughs> word many, many times. And I want to say we're there again. So I would just encourage people to, to keep up the good work because we are headed the right way. Let's keep trending that way. All right, folks, the flashing yellow is still on for another week. We're with Heather Hill of the Benton Franklin Health District. Thanks, as always, for your time. Back with the second half of Catholic on Call right after this. 
You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And if you missed any part of our program, Cadillac on Call is available on podcast. To listen on your time, just go to your favorite podcast platform and enter Cadillac on Call. The COVID pandemic has taken hospitals like Cadillac Regional Medical Center to the brink. In early September, about six weeks ago, as we're on the air today, COVID literally overran area hospitals and hospitals in our region, but hospitals all across the country. Thankfully, the number of hospitalized COVID patients has declined greatly, which brings, I know, great comfort to our next guest. Welcome to Catholic on Call, Kirk Harper, who is the Chief Nursing Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Catholic Regional Medical Center. And Kirk, as I I read that to you, what has the last couple of months been like for you and the team? Well, you know, it's definitely a different environment when about 12% of our inpatient population from where we were, about 30% of our inpatient population were COVID-positive patients. And the impact it had not only on our caregivers, but our ability to, uh, you know, receive transfers in. We had to do some uh, elective procedures. It also impacted, you know, our visitors, our care partners. And then so it just had a, a significant impact because it just changes the dynamics of the care we provide based off of the you know, those increased volumes of COVID positive patients uh, taking an inpatient bed and having the uh, you know the care that it requires to help them work through their disease process. And just for our listeners who may not be familiar with the, the statistics, and I guess I, probably the easiest way to describe it is, I think uh, lately uh, the hospitalized number at Cadillac has been in the mid twenties, low thirties, and again just six weeks ago that number Kirk was in the eighties, right? So literally uh, more than double. Yes, and that's a significant drop because we really do our best to cohort those patients in certain departments. And then we need to expand as we have more inpatients. As you indicated, we were up in the high 80s of of our patient population. And now, you know, being in the mid-20s to low-30s, you know, kind of ebb and flow there, it just, it's a significant difference. And, you know, you can almost feel the, the weight of the of the facility just by the decreased number, too, and the way it uh, impacts all of our caregivers and providers. And we have had, I know you've been on and other, other leaders uh, on the clinical side at Cadillac over the past 18 months, and and the, the one way I describe it to, to people when they ask, gosh, what is it like to have, you know, 80-plus COVID patients in the hospital? I say, well, you see that 10-story building, each of those top four floors or top six floors our patient areas, and they have anywhere from, what, 20 to 25 beds in them. So basically, you're saying four of those floors would be full of COVID patients if you extrapolate that uh, in those numbers into the 80s. So it just had to, this, the, the organization, it's just like it was everywhere. It was, and exactly what you're saying. I mean, some of the floors had 100% of COVID patients on them. That's how we really had them cohorted and focused in those departments. It, you know, it really helped with the delivery of care, too, because the expertise of the, the providers and the, and the nurses and the whole care team really you know, focused on those patients, having some consistency and continuity in the care really helped the majority of them because we have had a lot of patients uh, discharged from the hospital after their disease process, you know, and getting them uh, 
helping them heal through it. So it was definitely impactful. You touched on just the ability to meet the the need for people that want to utilize Catholic services pre-COVID. I know that's always been, it's been a a very busy place uh, to get patients in and out, not only from in the Tri-Cities, but in the region that Catholic serves. Give our listeners a little understanding of what that was like, because on a normal day, you would like to accept, uh, what, 10 to 15 transfers from some of these outlying smaller communities that would need the services that Catholic provides that they cannot? Absolutely. I mean, some of these rural hospitals, even smaller than than we are, really do not have the resources to care for uh, the patients that come in there who are very sick. They need to find another uh, organization to help care for those patients. And definitely as we serve our region, we have a lot more services and more beds and uh, more caregivers and providers and the ability to care for those patients. And when we are full with you know, as we were when we were just talking about being in the high 80s with our uh, COVID patients in the hospital, that limits the ability for us to receive those patients and help out all those areas and those other facilities and those communities who are trying to, you know, doing their best, too, with what they have and the resources they have. So they look upon us to really help be that release and that release valve and help with the continuum of care for those patients. And when we can't do that, it adds additional stress and burden to them, too, in their uh, facilities and in their communities. I don't want you to get into the weeds, but I I want you to share with our listeners a a part of the hospital system called the Transfer Center, and that's the group that manages all this in-and-out request to move patients uh, into the hospital at Cadillac uh, from these smaller and outlying communities. Talk about the role that they play and just, you know, it's not like a hotel where check-in is at 4 and check-out is at noon. It's it's constantly evolving, right? You know, the best way to really describe it is to envision an air traffic controller because you have, you know, if you can correlate patients coming in from all different areas, it's, you know, using that analogy of the airplanes coming in from different directions because we get patients getting transferred from the ICU to one of the acute care floors or young going from the OR to one of the surgical floor or ICU or step-down unit or clinical decision unit, or you have patients coming from the emergency department or the freestanding emergency department that need one of those inpatient beds, or you have them coming from, you know, PACU or a different area. So, yes, and the transfer center is the hub. Anyone coming into the organization or looking for a bed or that we're trying to assign a bed to goes through that hub and that group really is trying to navigate with all the open available beds, where to place the patients with staffing, and then who's coming in and then help prioritize and get them, you know, in the right patient in the right bed at the right time. And they do an amazing job in in the work that they do. And those are medically trained air traffic controllers, right? So they're nurses (laughs) in many cases. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they're nurses doing that job and making and looking at a lot of the, the clinical picture and helping to uh, with the work with the physicians and finding the right location, yes. <laughs> and if you would maybe uh, while we're on that topic, uh, part of that process is you to to move patients within the hospital setting, accept patients from outside the community or even within the community into the hospital setting. There's another key piece, and that's that support staff of the people that clean the rooms uh, when one patient leaves and another one is getting ready to come. The people that deliver the meals and all of that stuff. Talk a little bit about the role they play. Well, they play a very integral role because we need to definitely have the rooms turned over, the rooms cleaned, and equipment. We also need, you know, the, the services for providing uh, food and nutrition to our patients and having uh, our meal service uh, workers helping to deliver and then also 
the caregivers who prepare the, the food. So everyone has such an integral part in serving our patients and meeting their needs that, you know, absent of one, it definitely has a significant impact in our ability to help care for the, the volume of patients that we have coming in. So when we talk about a team approach, the team, the care delivery team goes beyond when people think of maybe your traditional nurses and physicians and CNAs, you know, you need to add everybody in that from, and I'm going to leave somebody out, so it's not intentional, but it's anyone from you know, environmental services, clinical engineering, or respiratory therapists, nutrition services, dietitians, I mean, all therapies. I could go on and on, so it's a full team approach to care for our patients. And are you still, I know, uh, especially during the most recent surge, that team, representatives from all of those areas that you just described, meet regularly and check in regularly to assess that. Is, is that still going on, or is that just something that's kind of been rubbed into the whole, baked into the whole system now, and, and you're going to keep doing it just because it's been so effective? Yeah, it's a, a combo of each. As we talked about our incident command center, we have stood that down from when we were in our high 80s, and when we transitioned down into our lower 30s, we started to decrease the frequency because the need to, to meet every day was not there. What we do have is being part of that caring reliably uh, organization. We do have our daily huddles, our tiered huddles, where we escalate, you know, harm events, caregiver injuries, things of that nature. And we have that communication uh, pathway so we really get the information of what occurs at the bedside to those who need to help uh, work through and resolve any of the issues that come up. So it's helped our foundation and our structure. So, yes, it's been one of those uh, items that is also embedded within the uh, structure that we have, we have built with our, our huddle system. Learning a little bit more beyond just the at-the-care bedside provided by the incredible clinicians at Cadillac, it's the entire team that plays a role in, in helping helping this organization, helping this community uh, get the care that it needs, uh, not only whether it's COVID or the re- the relative, the other types of care that uh, just happens 24-7, 365. Kirk has graciously agreed to stick around for another segment. Uh, we'll visit more with him about uh, the latest with COVID and kind of some reflections on what it's been like these past 20, 20 months. Uh, we'll do that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. We are visiting with Kirk Harper, the Chief Nursing Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Catholic Regional Medical Center. And Kirk shared some great insight that last segment on not only the thankfully lowering COVID rates in the hospital setting at Catholic and other hospitals around the region, but also the role that the entire uh, workforce at Catholic plays in, in taking care of patients, uh, pandemic or otherwise. And Kirk, you know, in, in the last uh, few weeks, we've we've talked about, we've a year ago, where were we doing this time? We're almost to the point where two years ago, where were we at this time? But we've estimated the past 80 or so programs on this that we have each week is focused mostly on COVID. And, and I'd just be curious, uh, you know, how are you how are you doing and, and where, what is the level of concern that the team has, the leadership team has, just on the impact that that's had emotionally on the staff? You know, I appreciate you asking that question. And first and foremost, just to, by adding to this, just want to say thank you to anybody who's listening to our caregivers and providers and the whole healthcare team and, and everything they've done and continue to do on a daily basis, uh, serving our patients and meeting the needs of our, our community and our region. 
You know, the impact to them is we're very concerned. And it, each department was impacted just a little bit differently, just depending upon the, you know, how many patients they had in that area, what was going on with the patients in those areas. So we have some uh, different variations within the hospital that the impact would be a little bit different than, uh, you know, for an ICU caregiver as opposed to someone who did not have the experience that some of our intensive care unit uh, caregivers went through as far as, you know, trying to help patients through their disease process and unfortunately whether they did, you know, make it off the, the ventilator or not. So definitely different uh, impact for each caregiver and provider. So it's just something to, to be aware of. And I, and I was going to say, you know, one thing that we frequently talked about with staff as we brought them on the program who have been frontline in in the COVID, COVID uh, battle, shall we say, is the role that they've also had to play on the patient family, patient advocate side, because as we know, uh, for the most part, family members of COVID patients are not allowed to be with them for safety reasons. And and I guess that's probably another unknown toll on the staff that it's taken is, is one, it's gone on for a long time, but two, what they, you know, they're always very caring uh, to their patients, I know, but they're having to be, they're forced into that role even more so given what, what they've been through and what they're, how, how they have to take care of patients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a profession, you know, compassionate care is something that we all take pride in, what we want to deliver to our patients and what they're experiencing and their family members. And, you know, when family members or the care partners are not available to be at the bedside and our clinical staff or any of the caregivers who have that opportunity are there with that patient when they're, you know, struggling with as they're going through this uh, disease process and their inability to have someone at the bedside with them, you know, yeah, they take on that role also in addition to being the caregiver. And that really does take a toll on our uh, caregivers and providers and how they, they work through that and not only help the patient through it, but then how they help each other through that uh, experience. And I'll say experiences, plural, because, you know, not necessarily just due to the volume of patients we've had. You know, it's not just a one or two. It's been quite a few uh, of those situations that our, our teams have, have uh, experienced. I was going to say, and not to put you on the spot, uh, you know, what do you know today about COVID and, and what you've been through as a team that you maybe you wished you knew three, six, nine, twelve months ago? Or is it just a case of that's what you've done? You've just evolved as this thing has evolved itself? You know, it's been a little bit of both. I'll say as we've had three significant waves come through our organization as far as peaks. So, and each one's had a little bit of a different nuance. There's been some consistency for each one, but there's been something new that we've learned just the way it's it impacted, one, by the sheer volume that, and, that we've experienced, but then also how it's impacted our caregivers and providers uh, working through it because it's had a different impact based off of the volume. So, We've definitely learned some things through that and what we would do differently. I guess some of it would be, uh, you know, how we work with our caregivers and providers due to the volume of what they're experiencing. And plus the length and the intensity of that uh, impact to them is something that uh, really, really resonates. So just some uh, good learnings, but also we've had good supply of our personal protective equipment, which has been, you know, supply chain has been amazing with materials management and making sure we our caregivers and providers have what they need and when they need it. And that right there, having the right equipment at the right time, really helps ease our teams through them as they're working through and caring for our patients. 
One final question, if you would, uh, as we hopefully are beginning to pivot out of COVID. I know Heather mentioned we're not going to totally see it go away, but it's going to certainly be a lot less uh, severe as it's been. As we do that, what are your main priorities and areas of focus going forward? You know, the lessons that we've learned, making sure that we stay on top of those and adhere to all those uh, things that we've learned around personal protective equipment, how we isolate the uh, infection prevention work that has gone into it, and then how we help our caregivers and even what we've learned around our experiences with uh, how we have family members or care partners at their bedside and work through that process, too. So we have a lot of learnings that we can do better, even with, uh, you know, like Heather mentioned before, are going to be with us for a while. We'll still have patients, but not to the same volume, hopefully, that we have experienced. And then we can take those good practices that we've learned and experienced and just enhance that and make that better in the care we provide. Well, Kirk Harper, the Chief Nursing Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Cadillac, thanks so much for your leadership through this time. I know you've had a tremendous uh, leadership team that's that's been right there with you, but uh, there's 3,700-plus uh, people throughout that Catholic team that deserve a ton of credit and all throughout our healthcare system around this region who are listening tonight. Thanks to Kirk, thanks to Heather, and thank you for listening to Catholic on Call. We'll talk again next week.